Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Andy Behar to the show. Andrew Behar is CEO of As You Sow, the nation's leading nonprofit practitioner of shareholder advocacy and engagement. Since 1992, As You Sow has used shareholder power to align investments with values and compel companies to reduce material risk on issues including climate change, toxins in the food system, ocean plastics, diversity, equity and inclusion, racial justice, and wage equity. Previously, Andrew was a documentary filmmaker and entrepreneur founding startups, developing an innovative physiological monitoring medical device, and grid-scale fuel cells. He is on the XPRIZE Brain Trust for Abundant Energy and the advisory boards of Real Impact Tracker and One Earth Institute. His book, The Shareholder's Action Guide, Unleash Your Hidden Powers to Hold Corporations Accountable, was published in November 2016 by Barrett Kohler. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Andy, thank you for joining us. Andy, where are you currently located? In Berkeley, California. How's the weather out there? It's a lovely day today. I think we're in the 60s or high 60s, so uh, very pleasant. Well, I'm proud to say that today in Dallas, we're at 67 and we're enjoying it a lot. It's very rare for us to be this cool this time of year. So I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? I don't know. The, the work that I do at As You Sow is so interesting. It's it's the most interesting thing about me, I really believe. Um, <laughs> it really, I got to say, it really is. It's just, I mean, I am so fascinated with all of the, the mechanisms, the, the machinations of the way corporate America works and the power that shareholders have, but don't realize they have. I, that's, I mean, when I'm asked to do one of these icebreakers and I, you know, you write something on a piece of paper and they pass it around the room and somebody has to guess, the thing I generally put is that I appeared on stage at the Metropolitan Opera with, um, with, with Pavarotti. And so nobody can ever guess that. Uh, but I did, in, in fact, do that. I was a spear carrier, uh, just at a, totally randomly, a friend called and said, we're short on spear carriers. What are you doing tonight? And I lived in New York and I, my cousin and I like jumped on the subway and we got there and they put us out on stage and there I was in Aida um, carrying a spear at the Metropolitan Opera. But uh, I, I love that. That's beautiful. And, you know, since you mentioned As You Sow, can you give the audience an overview of As You Sow and your role at the organization? Sure. So I'm the CEO of As You Sow. And by the way, it's spelled S-O-W, As You, S-O-W, um, as in the biblical, As You Sow, So Shall Ye Reap. 
and I've been the CEO for the past 11 years, so since 2010. It was founded in 1992, and so we've been around almost 30 years working on corporate accountability. 30 years is a long time, and we're in a different place today. Can you perhaps share maybe some ideas of how it's changed in the last 30 years from an awareness standpoint? Well, when As You So started, it was doing a lot of work on litigation, litigating with big corporations that had carcinogens and reproductive toxicants in their consumer products. That was essentially what As You So was doing. So some of those cases settled, and so the settlement money came into As You So. And so we started realizing, well, we're interacting with all these corporations. Are there other ways to interact with a corporation? And one of the ways that we did was through direct engagement. So even back then, and and by the way, there were faith-based groups doing this kind of thing back in the 1970s. Most famously, there were um, there were priests and, and nuns who showed up at the General Motors meeting uh, to talk about South African apartheid. And as shareholders, they were they showed up and the board and the executives at General Motors looked at them and said, you know, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we own shares. And we object to the fact that General Motors is still doing business in South Africa. They have plants there and that they are supporting the apartheid regime. And that was very famously the first time that I think shareholders were really heard in the power of shareholders. And what happened is they filed a shareholder resolution and which is a formal way that a shareholder can address a corporation. And there's a vote and they found that a lot of shareholders agreed. And this was a, a major shift. And so what we do is, is really just from that, that, that legacy, that you know, standing on the shoulders of amazing people who have stood up to power in this way. And so we talked to a lot of companies. Um, last year in 2020, we had 131 engagements where we sat down with, with senior executives at many companies to talk about things like climate change, ocean plastics, toxins in the food system, racial justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, wage justice, a whole range of issues. Now, most of the companies, when we approach them, we say, look, we're shareholders or we represent shareholders. And we've identified a material risk and we have a solution that's going to make a better company that's going to help the company avoid a potential potential litigation or a potential problem and so when we present it in that way it sometimes takes a little time but eventually the company says oh this is actually a really good idea we're going to benefit from this and they adopt it so we had 131 engagements last year 55 of those, the company said, this is a great idea. Let's go do it. 76, we escalated by filing a shareholder resolution. And of those 76, all but 22 agreed to a settlement. 22 went to a vote and we had four majority votes and about $800 billion worth of shares were voted yes on as you so resolutions. Now we're a small 501c3 nonprofit. We're, we're 20 people basically. And so we're leveraging our position as shareholders to really help these companies to find better environmental, social, and governance policies and practices. So it's obviously you're punching above your weight. Um, how many shares does an individual or your organization have to hold in order to get that engagement or get that audience? So currently, you need to hold $2,000 worth of a company for one year in order to file a shareholder resolution. 
Now, last year, the SEC changed those rules and they put new rules in place that will go into effect on January 1st of 2022 that make it much more, you have to hold $25,000 worth of shares. But there's a lot of, uh, between now and then, we'll see if that ever actually gets instituted because there's both a Congressional Review Act that's being looked at, and there's also potential litigation against it. Um, So they're trying to make it more difficult for shareholders to have that engagement with the company. They're trying to make people with wealth have a louder voice. They're trying to suppress new ideas. This is all from the last administration's SEC, which um, tried to silence shareholders. And we will simply not be silenced. We own these companies. We are the beneficial owners of these corporations. And as shareholders, we have a right to make sure that the company avoids material risk. And that's why we own the shares. That's that's why people buy shares of stock. And and that is absolutely a, a right that is uh, that's not going to be taken away from them. Going from two thousand to twenty five thousand is quite a leap. We think it's we think it is. We think it's not uh, not a good idea at all. Uh, so we're obviously we wrote many comment letters to the SEC objecting to it. And, and I'm not getting into too much more of the nuance. There's there's a, there's actually four things that they're changing. Um, one of them would not allow as you so to represent other shareholders. So currently, as you so, we we represent shareholders. So for instance, if we're going to be <clears throat> talking to Yum Brands about Styrofoam, which this literally happened, um, where one of our programs is, has to do with ocean plastics and the destruction of the ocean ecosystem. So we had a conversation with Yum Brands and we said, you guys use a lot of Styrofoam and most of it or a lot of it's going into the ocean and it is it breaks down into tiny particles and the fish think it's food and they eat it and it's destroying marine ecosystems. So from that engagement, we then found a shareholder, a person who'd held the stock $2,000 for a year. In this case, they held it for a decade and much more stock than that. They signed a document authorizing as you sort of file on their behalf. And then we went and talked to the company. Now the company said, well, we're not going to do anything. So we filed a shareholder resolution. We got a good vote. Now, by the way, these votes are all what are called precatory. That means that they are non-binding. Even if you get a 90% vote, the company doesn't have to do it. But if you get it, you know, if you get a 20% vote, if one, one out of five of your your shareholders wants you to do something, you're going to take a good look at it. So Yum Brands, after much negotiation, agreed to stop using styrofoam in 6,700 stores across the entire planet. Similarly with McDonald's, similarly with Dunkin', if you combine them all together, about 3 billion styrofoam cups will not be produced this year because of three engagements that as you so had with these three companies that suggested they could be using recycled cardboard and that they could also recycle that cardboard and they could be part of a circular economy and it would be good for their brands. It would cost them less, etc. So that's kind of how it works is just in a, in one kind of a simple, simplified example. That's pretty amazing change you made there. What's some of the pushback besides, um, I'm going to state the obvious maybe is, you know, saving money or not wanting to spend additional money for recycled materials. What's some of the pushback you get from some of these companies? You know, a lot of times they're just not that aware that, that this risk is, exists. So another example would be 
<clears throat> we saw this risk around what are called superbugs. So when you feed uh, chickens, uh, poultry, antibiotics in their feed, so they're getting it every single day, what happens is that the, the bacteria evolves. They become superbugs. They're, they're antibiotic resistant. So we approached the big poultry producers, Tyson and Purdue and Sanderson Farms, and we talked to them about it. And they said, well, we're just not interested in this. You know, they told, basically told us, take a hike. So we did. We took a hike down to their customers and we talked to McDonald's, who we have relationships with, Wendy's, KFC. They were not that interested. So we took another hike and we started talking to parent groups. There were groups that had organized saying that they did not want their kids exposed to superbugs and so they weren't going to be allowing them to eat chicken McNuggets anymore. So we, we met with them. We helped them amplify their message a bit. And we took that back upstream. We said, McDonald's, we have a McNugget crisis here. Now, they did not, didn't see it coming. They, it wasn't on their radar. We said, but we see a material risk. It's going to, it's going to impact our market share. Well, once you start talking about market share, they they get very interested and they said, wow, what do we do? They said, well, you tell your suppliers that you want chicken that's raised without, without uh, medically important antibiotics. So they signed the pledge. We took that to Wendy's. They said, McDonald's is doing it. Okay, we'll sign. Took it to KFC. They signed, took all those signatures upstream to the same group, Tyson, Purdue, and Sanderson, and said, look, all of your customers are saying they want a different product. If you don't supply it, you're not going to be in business. They all said, okay, and they all changed. So the whole industry just wasn't acknowledging that there was a, a scientifically known problem that was going to affect market share and ultimately affect public health. And so we brought that information to them. And once they understood the impact that it would have on them, they uh, agreed that there was a, a sensible solution. So that's an example of how you use market forces to help to uh, help to inform these corporations, really. Well, market forces and peer pressure, I guess, too. Yeah, I'd say that that's peer pressure is a very powerful thing. Um, you know, when one company now we do this a lot where we we do scorecards. So uh, I mentioned Ocean Plastics right now we're working on a second report. It's actually our sixth report on ocean plastics. But two years ago, we did one where we looked at 50 companies on 35 key performance indicators on plastic. And we're now redoing it to see how the companies have improved. We also looked at 14 food companies on their pesticide use. Did they spray their food with glyphosate, which is a known carcinogen? And in this case, basically every food company in America, every major one was spraying it's Roundup, which is a known carcinogen. It's also known as glyphosate. That's the, um, the chemical term. They spray it on their wheat, oats, and beans right before they harvest it. And this is to desiccate it. It's called a desiccant. It, what it does is it basically, if you're going to go in with a thresher on a wheat field, some of the wheat's a little greener, some of it's browner. You want it all evenly brown so you get the, the, the highest yield. So they spray it with this toxic poison a week or two before harvest. And then it increases the yield, but it also puts a carcinogen in all of our food, in all of our wheat, all of our beans, all of our um, all of our oats. And so we went. We talked to Kellogg, and we said, "Hey, um, you know, the folks at Kellogg." We sent them a letter. We usually we usually send a letter first. We said we think there's a real problem here, having to do with 
um, you know, putting toxic material into your food products. And we believe Kellogg food should be safe to eat. So we came in, we had a meeting with them and we explained to them the risk. Now, when we presented it and we're saying, we think it's just bad business to be poisoning your customers. And they're looking at us and going like, how so? And we're saying, well, because there've been two cases at that time uh, on glyphosate. Now these were cases where somebody was spritzing glyphosate in their backyard for, you know, knock down the weeds that had gotten a $200 million and a $400 million um, settlement. I said, imagine every single bowl of Special K has glyphosate in it. This is going to be bigger than tobacco settlements because people are eating it and they're eating it every day. And then they went, oh, okay, this is like, this is real risk. And we said, yes. And they said, we agree. Kellogg signed a no glyphosate policy. They're moving it through their entire supply chain. It's going to take them a few years, but they are going to drive this practice. Now, nobody was spraying glyphosate 10 years ago. Everybody was harvesting their food. In fact, they don't do it anywhere else in the world. Europe banned it years ago because, of course, they have what's called the precautionary principle where you have to prove something safe before you put it in your food. In the United States, you can put anything in your food and then you have to prove that somebody got sick from it and prove the causation, which is nearly impossible. So we just have it upside down here in the United States. But but Kellogg agreed. They said, yeah, we're going to do this. And now you mentioned peer pressure. So now we've brought that to all the other food companies and said, look, Kellogg's is doing it. Kellogg's food is safe to eat. Don't you want yours to be safe to eat? And they're all saying, yeah. And we're explaining to them that they don't have to buy these expensive chemicals. They don't have to hire these airplanes to spray it on the crops, that they can harvest it. And they'll have like a, it's like a 3% lower yield, which actually will save, they'll actually make more money because the cost of all doing all of that mechanized toxic farming costs more than what they were making from the, the gain of it. It's, it's, we have a system that just oftentimes does not make sense just in terms of just, if you just think about it in the most basic common sense way that these farmers didn't want to spray their, their crops, but they, they felt they had to, and they were pressured by Monsanto and other big corporations to do it. So Kellogg is a leader. We got them. Now we're getting all of their competitors to follow them. And soon we will have a glyphosate free food system in the United States. Well, I appreciate you for doing that especially with three young kids who happen to love Kellogg cereals. Um, they're good. <laughs> they're they're, they're going to be safe to eat soon. They, absolutely. How do you get access to the data from the companies regarding you know, what they're doing? Well, first of all, anything that we have in our scorecards is something that is publicly disclosed, which means that it is a material disclosure by the company, which means the company must be truthful or they risk a material breach. So... Um, Another example of a scorecard, we just, after the George Floyd murder last summer, we created a racial justice initiative and we started looking and saying, well, how do we evaluate one company versus the other? And we realized there's no data. So we hired a woman, her name is Olivia Knight. She'd written her master's thesis about environmental justice and she put together a team and we started gathering data on the S&P 500 on racial justice. So we brought together an incredible advisory council, people with real deep expertise on this issue. And we just developed uh, 22 key performance indicators. Then we had our researchers go out and read 
the CSR, the Corporate Social Responsibility Reports, the annual reports, what's on the website of these companies, read the news from the companies to see how they fit into these key performance indicators. And what it did is we came up with an aggregated score for the company. And we then could look across the S&P 500. And if you go to our website, if you go to asyouso.org, um, right on the uh, excuse me, uh, right on the front page, click on the Today Show. Today Show did a five-minute piece, a uh, video on, on the racial justice scorecard. If you, so you click right there, you'll get to see the video, but it'll also take you to a page where you can click on a data visualization tool where you can search any company and you can compare it to any other company. And you can see, you can slice it by sector. Now, we also did this for diversity, equity, and inclusion. What we found is that there was so little data that was out there that we started just to grade the companies on, did they disclose data? Did they disclose their EEO1, which is their Equal Employment Opportunity Form, which every company does, but only some companies disclose. So were they disclosing that? But that's not even a great metric. So we wanted much deeper data. So we started asking the companies for, um, for data on recruitment, retention, and promotion cut by gender, cut by race, cut by ethnicity. Because then you could see if a company hires a lot of, of people of color, but they never promote them and they don't pay them well, you don't see that in the EEO one. We want to see that. We want to see the pay gap for, for women. We also, there's a promotion gap for women that I'm not sure if you know this, but you know, most people talk about that women get paid less than men for doing the same job. And that is true. But an equally problematic data point is that if 50% men and 50% women started an entry level, when you get to a senior vice president level, then you have 18% women and 82% men. The women are not getting promoted. And so that shows up in the data we're looking for. You wouldn't spot that looking at an EEO one. So in any case, we now have a scorecard for the S&P 500 looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion disclosure. And we have one for racial justice. We're about to expand racial justice to incorporate five new key performance indicators on, on environmental justice. And then we're gonna expand the whole thing out to the S actually the Russell 1000. So we're gonna add another 500 companies uh, later this year. And in this way, it gives companies a way to benchmark themselves also. So this is really important for companies to see that how they're being scored, how they're being evaluated, how they're being seen by the world. And it also, customers, it will change the, their loyalty. If they see a company that they're really loyal to getting really bad grades on racial justice, well, they might just shift over to one that has a better score. And that drives the company to then improve their policies and practices. Um, one company that got a very poor score was Abbott Labs. It's a major pharmaceutical company. And we actually engaged them in a conversation about what they should change. Um, but they decided they didn't want to implement the changes we had in mind, which were incremental over time. And so we, we went to a vote and we just got a 40% vote. So almost half of Abbott's shareholders believe that racial justice is a really important thing for the company to work on. And just this morning, we actually got a majority vote at American Express on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what you're seeing is that shareholders are sending a very strong message to management and the boards that these are important 
material issues that they must really deal with in, in a, in a very sincere way. And, and, it, and it's not a mystery of what they need to do. We know what they need to do. We know what best practices look like. And it has to do with justice. It has to do with basic justice and transparency. So uh, this is not rocket science for these companies to fix this issue and get therefore get better scores. This is just a matter of internally for the company deciding that this is something that is of importance. I was going to ask you, and maybe you can give an example of a company, you mentioned Abbott, that has challenged the metrics that you've chosen for your scorecard and pushed back and said, uh, we disagree with you. No, Abbott did disagree, actually. Abbott actually said, you know, you're right. Our CEO didn't sign a racial justice statement, and we didn't call for um, a, a change to for systemic racism. And we don't disclose all of our diversity, equity, and inclusion information. No, they, they agreed with us, and they agreed that the, that the metrics that we were looking at were important. Um, well, the feedback we did get was that some of the companies that came out in the top 10, they have their business model is not necessarily beneficial to communities of color. And therefore, that's why we added the five new key performance indicators that more evaluate the overall what does the company do for a living? And is that, you know, should they be in the top 10, regardless of how well they address their racial justice issues within the company, their very business itself is, uh, you know, is problematic. So, so that's something that we're looking at really closely. Again, we brought our, our advisory committee together to talk about it and figure it out, to look at past studies, who's done work, um, trying to do it in as thoughtful a way and as transparent a way as possible. All of our methodologies are clearly put out on our website and we welcome any kind of um, somebody who says, hey, you could have got done this better. We That's how we get better. Um, we have a whole other set of data that evaluates mutual funds that has evolved. We started in 2015 and the idea was most people own mutual funds. There's 100 million people who work at companies that have a 401k plan or a 403b plan if you work at a at a college or a nonprofit no one knows what they own no one knows what's actually inside a mutual fund now mutual funds are a basket of stocks it could be 500 stocks it could be 1000 it could be 3000 stocks it could be 50 if you read the prospectus it'll tell you how many but they'll only ever talk about the top 10 holdings that means the companies that that have the most greatest proportion of of money associated with them. But you could be owning all kinds of companies. And so we were involved with, uh, there was a whole movement around divesting fossil fuels. And again, we don't work alone. We, we coordinate with a lot of other groups. And in any case, there was a, uh, a statement, I want to divest from fossil fuels. I don't want to own big oil. I don't want to be part of climate change. I don't want to be destroying the planet. And about 50,000 people signed this pledge. And what we discovered when we talked to them is nobody knew what they own. They said, what do I do now? I don't even know if I own anything. So, and there was no way to find out. So what we did is we built a tool. It's called Fossil Free Funds. If you go to fossilfreefunds.org, there's just a, an entry bar. You could type in Vanguard or you can type in uh, you know, V-I-N-I-X, which is a ticker, or you can, whatever, you can just write the name of the fund. And what pops up is an analysis. So 
this particular Vanguard fund. It has 22 companies that are big oil companies. It has this many 18 coal companies. It's got you know 16 fossil-fired utilities. Now, you might think this fund, because it's called something, the Vanguard, you know, the Admiral Fund. Oh, it's about admirals. Of course, it must be good. <laughs> but in fact, you own all these fossil fuel companies. So then we went deeper and we partnered with the friend, Friends of the Earth. And we started looking at that same basket of stocks from the lens of deforestation. Well, click on the deforestation score right there, and it'll take you over to the deforestation site. And you will see that you own companies that are burning down the Indonesian and the Amazon rainforest. You'll see that you own big banks that are funding their destruction. And you'll see the consumer brands that use palm oil, that use paper, rubber, timber, cattle, and soy that are creating demand to continue to destroy the rainforest. So then we go deeper and we started looking at weapons and we looked at, do you own, are you benefiting, are you profiting from cluster munitions, landmines, nuclear weapons, assault weapons? When there was that Walmart shooting, um, the site was just so overwhelmed with people wanting to know, am I profiting from assault weapons? And, and then you find when you go in, and I do a lot of talks at different organizations about their their 401k plans and about how they invest and aligning investing with values. Uh, an example, I was at the World Bank and they gave me a list of what's in their 401k plan. And I start just bringing these up and just to show people what's inside. And there it was just as, just, just, you couldn't miss it that they got an F because they were invested in cluster munitions and landmines. Now, a lot of the people in the audience have spent their entire career trying to eradicate cluster munitions and landmines, and they were horrified. And there was no way for them to know it. But here it was. And all we're doing is we're, we're just comparing uh, you know, databases. And we update it once a month. We make sure it's always present and always as, as, as up-to-date as possible. And, um, and it's really just about transparency. We're not telling people how to invest. What we're saying is just invest with intention. If so we then added a gender equality funds one. And then most recently this summer, as part of our racial justice work, we added private prisons. And I can tell you that if you own Vanguard, if you are in a Vanguard fund, you are profiting from private prisons. You are profiting from the prison industrial complex. And that's just the way Vanguard invests. They All of their top funds get Ds and Fs on our site because they own actual private prisons and also um, other companies that support the, the prison industrial complex. So the manifestation of racist policy, which is the the incarceration system in the United States, you are making money from if you invest at Vanguard. It's just the way it is. Uh, you know, I could keep going here. BlackRock just put out a new fund called the it's called the U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness Fund. So people thought, oh, well, this will reduce my climate risk. And $1.2 billion invested in this fund the first day. That's a record. That is the, the most money ever flowing into an ETF. That's an exchange-traded fund in one day, $1.25 billion. And I'm sure most of those people went there because they were, thought they were getting climate risk. But if you do the analysis, the Exxon, Chevron, Duke, Southern, all the big utilities, all the coal-fired utilities, Schlumberger, all the oil field services, the pipeline companies, the big banks, JP Morgan that funds all the destructive projects. It's it's basically, it's the, well, I would have called it the 
carbon business as usual fund. And I don't think mm. they would have gotten as much investment had they named it in a more appropriate way. So I find the naming misleading, uh, but the SEC allows it. So this is the nature of investing today. You have to do your homework because there are fossil-free funds. They're literally called fossil-free funds with 27 fossil fuel companies in them. It's it's just, you have to do your homework. It, you got to, it's like, you got to read the label, you know, if you, to know what's inside. So Andy, I'm busy. I have a family, work, kids, you know, just life in general. This is an automatic set it and forget it kind of ETF perhaps. Where can I go? Or is there an easier way for me to find out where I can do responsible, sustainable investing? The tools we built are pretty easy. You will know where you're at in under three to five minutes. If you look at your 401k and write down the ticker numbers, as you're probably invested in maybe four or five different mutual funds. If you go to our site, just type them in and you'll see it's a, it's a, it's a report card and you can see your grades across um, all seven different issue areas. So you'll know pretty quick. What's the alternative? Where can I invest my money responsibly? How, okay. What kind of effort do I have to go through to go invest responsibly? You may find in your 401k plans, some 401k plans have 20, 50, 80 different choices. You may find that there's another choice that might have, I've seen funds where, I mean, uh, plans, uh, 401k plans, where people were invested in one fund that had 300 tons of carbon per million US, like like the number 300, remember that in terms of carbon. And there was another fund that was pretty equivalent that had 20. So they could reduce their carbon footprint massively just with one click, but they just didn't know that. A lot of funds though are invested. There's nothing that's sustainable in them at all, which means it's going to be more problematic in terms of you're going to need to talk to your 401k administrator and say, there's nothing I can invest in. I need you to add a fossil-free, a weapon-free, a gender positive fund, a prison free. And frankly, every mutual fund manager should just add, we believe at least 20% of the holding of the funds in the plan should offer some alternatives to people. And they should vet them the way they vet any other fund, looking at their returns over five or 10 years or three years, whatever they require. They should be looking at, you know, some, some funds say, you know, you can't have a fund in here that's got less than 2 billion in assets. We understand that. There are so many good funds. When you go to our site and you click on show me the best ones, you see funds that get all A's or all B's or B and better. And there are just literally hundreds and hundreds of these. There is a whole industry of people, uh, of of really brilliant uh, investment professionals that have spent their whole careers figuring out how to do this right. And many of them belong to an organization called USCIF, SIF, Social Investing Forum. If somebody's a member of, of USCIF, pretty good chance they've actually got the real McCoy. They've, got, they've actually got real funds that are have environmental, social, and governance. And when you compare them, you know, you've got to do your, your own comparison and decide on you know, returns, on fees, on whether you want something that's an ETF or managed. And I know this is getting more complex, but um, there's a certain amount of, amount of responsibility. You know, it's your money. And if you just put it into the default option that your company gives you, and you feel good about making profiting, profiting from private prisons and from burning down the Amazon, then that is your, that's your personal decision. 
but I don't think many people actually have thought that through. And it's not that difficult. It really is not. They they will make it seem like it's very, very difficult. And when you go and talk to your 401k administrator, and by the way, on our site, um, on Fossil Free Funds, if you click on the toolkit, we have a letter that you can download and you can fill in your company name to bring to your your 401k administrator that explains all this stuff. We have a toolkit and we have videos, you know, step one, two, three, how you do it, how you talk to your peers about this. Uh, We are going to be coming out with, and this should probably help, a report card for every company. So for example, Amazon, they are great on climate change. What can I say? They, they're, they're in the middle of buying 100,000 electric vehicles. Their data centers will all be powered by renewables. Operationally, A+. But every single person who works at Amazon owns the destruction of the Amazon. That's right. Every single fund that Amazon has gets a very poor grade for rainforest destruction, and not to mention big fossil fuels and private prisons and all that. But the irony is not lost on on me. And Or should it be on anyone who works at Amazon? And frankly, Jeff Bezos, if he just said, you know what, fix this, it would be fixed in about, if it takes more than a month, then you got the wrong advisor. You should get a new financial advisor. This is not rocket science. This is just, you can add to a plan. You could add 20 more funds to the plan. Do your due diligence and add them and then train people and teach them what it is. This is the thing. At Amazon, they actually do have a quote sustainable fund, but only 1.88% of the money in the plan is being put in that sustainable fund. And by the way, it's not a great fund. It's a Vanguard fund and it does really poorly on private prisons and really poorly on rainforest destruction, but it's at least named a sustainable fund. And but but just but just one more note about naming. In the three thousand funds that we evaluate, eighty-eight have ESG, environmental, social, and governance, in their name. That's the name of the fund. And of those, half of them, literally forty-three of them, get a D or an F on one of our metrics. These are funds with ESG in their name. So buyer beware. It is not laid out for you easily. The SEC is not doing a very good job about uh, you know, actually making things so that they're not misleading. Well, for those of you listening, I would highly recommend, I, you know, I'm on the site right now, the invest in your values tab. You could spend an entire morning there going through your funds and the reports. I think it's an extremely robust site and I really appreciate the work you've been doing. You know, you mentioned something about personal decisions earlier and earlier in the conversation, you said you've been with the organization, I believe, 11 years. What's your why? Why did you come to the organization and what keeps you going? You mentioned earlier too about your work is very interesting and I appreciate that, but you know, what, what's your personal underlying motivations? You know, I've always felt that corporate power was something that was outsized. Of the 100 largest financial entities in the world, 69 are corporations. So Walmart sits right between Canada and Spain. These are the largest, most powerful entities on the planet, and they control our lives. That if you look out and you say, I don't like climate change, I don't like what's happening to the oceans, uh, racial injustice, like like I like this parad- this current paradigm that we're in is not what I would consider to be sustainable. It can't be self-sustaining, nor does it have, is it taking care of people? Um, well, that's because of corporate policies and practices. 
And so I've always felt that by shifting those, those practices that can be beneficial to the company and to, you know, you, you hear people talk about, you know, the, the triple bottom line, people, planet. Um, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a path to a regenerative economy based on justice and sustainability. I believe that. I see it. I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing it emerge right now, every day. Companies that are showing their leadership are the ones who need signals from their investors and from their customers to say, yes, keep leading. And there is a, this whole other paradigm based on destruction and extraction that's no longer it's 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 dying away. The whole the ideas of Milton Friedman have been overturned. There's a whole new philosophy. There's a new purpose of a corporation that the Business Roundtable and the World Economic Forum have endorsed that talks about this, that gives companies permission. They've all signed up for this to take care of their employees, to take care of their communities, their supply chain, their customers, and their shareholders. That this is the emergence of, of a whole new. Uh, just, just a whole new paradigm. And that to me is what keeps me going because I see it clearly. I see that it's not only possible, but it is, uh, it's, it is beneficial for, for everybody. Um, and so it's a matter of kind of, we're in a, we're in a, we're, we're mid, we're midwives for this new economy and, and, and the birth pangs are painful and we're in the middle of it right now. So this is this is this is the moment, and this is the moment for people to become aware of your power as you emerge from your your COVID isolation. We've all been, you know, in, in our little cocoons, and in our cocoons we have we have transformed, we've metamorphosized, and we now realize how powerful we are. We own all these companies, and if as shareholders we get together and say we own this company, and we wanted to to, to act in a different way, then that will be what happens. And so this is a moment in time to, to really look at look at your power and don't abdicate your power. That's 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 what's been going on for too long. And and we can actually really change have a completely changed world. So we're 50 years into I guess 50 years ish you know the the years after Milton Friedman and his famous letter that he wrote in the paper regarding shareholders, shareholder primacy, how long do you think it will take us to unwind it? Well, it took 50 years to win the battle of ideas. It took 50 years for shareholder advocates. And I mentioned the nuns, the faith-based groups that were at the General Motors meeting in 1970s. Though What they were asking for was stakeholder capitalism. So it took 50 years for the idea to shift. I think we can actually change the the rest of it now to follow. Um, I'd give it. I'd give it within the next three to five years. I don't think companies that. I think the companies that don't do this will be out of business. I think they'll be winding down. I think most of these big oil companies that don't transform will be winding down. I think you're going to see. You know, people kiddingly call it Exxon Kodak. Well, there's a reason for that because they're just you know a decade of losing money. They're they don't seem to realize that all those European oil companies are actually transforming. Look, look at the Danish natural gas company that's become Orsted. That's now the world's largest offshore wind company. You can power the whole planet with offshore wind. I mean, there's so many opportunities and yet 
there's all these companies that are just keep sticking their head in the ground. They will not be in existence. Coal, everybody said, you know, coal, be, you know, coal industry lost 80, 90% of its value. Yet it's just, we're in a transformation. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of companies winding down in the next few years. And we're going to see a lot of companies that are willing to, to actually be bold leaders will actually be taking the forefront. And so this is an amazing time. This is a, a remarkable time to, to be alive and to help this help midwife this this new era, this new as as the World Economic Forum. Now, you wouldn't think I'd be quoting the World Economic Forum, <laughs> but they called it, they put forth a new a manifesto, the fourth manifesto for the new, the fourth era of business. I mean, that's what you're hearing from the World Economic Forum. It's not, that's not those aren't my words. And what they're talking about literally is adoption of stakeholder capitalism, where you take care of your of your employees and your customers and your and your community, you don't dump in the commons. You don't externalize your costs. That they always come back to bite you. That you think long term. And this is this is this is where we are. We are in the middle of and and there's corporate executives and corporate boards that are thinking about this right now. And this year, the proxy votes are going to be off the charts. I've already tell you. I've already seen more. Um, majority votes than I've ever seen. Um, and and there's a reason. It's because shareholders are waking up and they're saying, I don't want my company that I own to do this anymore. It's And we own them. So we're the boss. <laughs> so in my research for this conversation, I watched a TEDx talk you gave back in, I believe, 2010. So 10 years ago now, you've been with the company 11 years, you've said, What's the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey? Tenacity, that if I just stay true to the North Star of empowering shareholders to, to own their power, that, that they'll come around. That when I started, people were kind of looking at me and going like, yeah, come on. When we put out the, uh, the first investor value tool, fossil free funds, people were saying, well, this is interesting. But I mean, we couldn't get any funding for this. I mean, literally, I, I, six months I talked to foundations about the importance of of data for that data that that is transformational, and now people are coming around to it. So just it's really just pure tenacity of believing in these ideas, believing in these ideals, and 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 doing the work, doing the hard work in the weeds looking at the real data, making sure it's accurate, making sure our methodologies are absolutely transparent, listening. Uh, so it's it's really about tenacity and knowing that ultimately this is about truth. This is about truth and about power and that people want to have a world that is that is regenerative, that is sustainable and that and that takes care of people. So it's uh, you know our our vision is a safe, just, and sustainable world for all. So you know a safe world, just world, sustainable world for everybody. That is what that's our north star. And so that's it. So speaking of believing in your ideals, it's fast forward. It's twenty thirty. If Forbes or Business Week were to write a headline about as you sow, what would it read? It would read shareholder power 
I think that's about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the interesting thing. You know, you look and people say, oh, these boards of directors, they're, they, you know, they're inaccessible. No, they work for us. Like every board of, board of directors and every CEO works for the shareholders. We are the boss. So it's just a matter of us realizing that we have the power and then voting. You know, most people don't even vote. 30%, I mean, 30% of votes are, are basically retail and only about 18% even vote. We just actually created a new voting service called As You Vote. Um, it sits on the Proxy Edge, the Broadridge Proxy Edge platform. And we want everybody to vote. And we're going to make it so simple. We're going to make it one click and everybody will vote. And everyone's going to vote and say, yeah, I don't want this company to be destroying my environment. I don't want my company to be abusing their employees. Uh, it's like, I don't want slavery in supply chain. And you'll be able to vote. And it's really about exerting our power. So I think we're going to see a lot of new boards of directors. I think you're going to see all kinds of new rules around auditing because right now there's not a lot of transparency. Companies need to be absolutely transparent with all their environmental, social, and governance disclosures. You know, we got companies saying one thing out of one side of their mouth and then you know, they're saying, oh, you know, yeah, we, we, we're going to work on climate change. And then on the other side, they're funding, uh, you know, dark money groups to go and try to destroy uh, any kind of policy or any kind of change on climate. You know, you've got this duplicity. And the more we call them out on it, the more we say this cannot. And these people just should, should, should lose their jobs. I mean, that is what's called, uh, you know, that's, that's lying. That's not something that we want in our corporate cultures. So, just like get it straight and do it, say who you are. And, 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 and that's, it's, it's not, this is not, I keep, I've said this many times now in this, in this interview, it's not rocket science. This is like simple common sense. You don't need a PhD in economics to know that you just, you don't lie to your shareholders. And, but yet a lot of companies, they just, they say one thing and they do another. And you know, we've been asking that question of BlackRock a lot lately. At last year's AGM, uh, literally, I asked directly. If you you can see the videotape of my talk there, which is how do words become actions? That Larry Fink's letter points out the problems, but then they and they have the solutions in their grasp, and they don't take the they don't do it. And this this is one thing that just really just is a real big question in my mind, like. Like Larry Fink and people like Jamie Dimon, they've amassed power over their lives and they've identified the problems. Like Larry Fink's letter brilliantly talks about every company must have a Paris compliant transition plan. Yet he doesn't, then he stops short of saying, and if you don't, we're going to vote against your board. And if you don't, after six months after that, we're going to drop your company from our managed funds. If he said that, every company would have a climate transition plan. If Jamie Dimon said, JP Morgan will no longer invest in any extraction projects. It's going to change the nature of the cost, the cost of capital to, to do an extraction project. It's going to go through the roof. And so this is the ability of these, just I'm picking up just these two. If they just did those two things tomorrow, it would change the nature of the battle to save the planet from climate catastrophe. And yet they don't. And if they did, they would make more money. Their brands would be through the roof. People would be saying, oh my gosh, BlackRock, they're using their power. BlackRock just voting for a climate resolution is 
I mean, they basically voted against every climate resolution for the last 10 years. They're starting to just now uh, begin to vote because of pressure from, there's like 10 different NGO groups that are pressuring them and pointing out how they say one thing and do another. So we have the capacity to actually fix these problems, uh, but our leaders are choosing not to. And I don't understand why, because they could be on the front, they, they could be on the cover of Time Magazine as like world heroes. They probably win Nobel Prizes and make more money. Mm-hmm. And yet they decide, nah, you know, I could be Batman, but I'm going to be Penguin. You know, I don't get it. If well, I could I love- be Batman, I'd be Batman. I wouldn't be Penguin. Well, I love the idea of the headline, shareholder power. Hopefully it'll come out sooner than later. Yeah. And you've already given some very tactical advice. But if you can narrow it down, let's say someone's listening today, you know, what's one or two things they can do professionally or personally, words of advice, words of wisdom, what would it be? Know what you own, understand your own power, align your investing with your values, and, and you just use your power. Just, just exert, exert what is yours. Don't abdicate your power. Andy, I think that's a great place to end. Don't abdicate your power. I know I'm going to be on your site for quite a bit. I'm going to see if I can download the letter and you know send it off to our 401k provider and see what changes we can make personally. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And I, again, highly recommend the audience to go to your site and check out all the tools and the reports. You'll spend an entire day there. The information is amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? No, no, thank you. I really appreciate your time and um, and I think really just, just great appreciation for what you do. And just because spreading the word is so important. The communication around it is, is critically important. A lot of people just don't even know that it, this whole world exists. And and so just, just putting it out there and spreading the word is, is just hugely important. And I guess I can't end without saying we are a 501c3 organization. We run on a shoestring of a budget and we appreciate any donations from anyone. Um, we have huge gratitude for our the foundations who support us and also for our, our personal, our individual donors. I appreciate it. And speaking of spreading the word, I do want to give a quick shout out to Glenn Hallam of Greenwave, where I learned about you when you presented there. It was a phenomenal conference. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have heard about you. So thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. Agreed. Appreciate All right. You'll be well. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.